Good morning, Promise Church. Today we conclude our sermon series on the hope that's found in Psalms. And we got ourselves all the way to Psalm 97. I was going to do Psalm 119, but um, it's long. So we chose Psalm 97 in its place. Um, Just as a note, Psalm 119 has this beautiful piece of our prayers being put in submission to God as the teacher. And it's just, it's fantastic. Um, But it is also ridiculously long. So um, maybe for another day, maybe we'll do a whole sermon series on Psalm 119. But today, Psalm 97 is a totally different vein of Psalms that we have not yet explored. And it's the Psalms that look at creation as the means to understand God. And, you know, that sounds really different in our Christian perspective where we don't tend to think about creation. A lot of us by nature say, oh, well, I feel close to God when I'm in nature. Well, the psalmist feels close to God in nature, but in some ways, some of the imagery that we'll see is going to surprise us. So Psalm, 1, or psalm 79 is a great psalm. There's a whole bunch of them in this genre as well. And it is another really good, positive way to approach God and to see who he is. Obviously, it's all written in a poetry. And uh, we're going to talk about that today and really how it affects our view of God. All of these sermons have been sermons that are not just meant to be information. They're meant to be put into practice. That as you read these Psalms, you understand that there is more language to be used for the glory of God, to be used in our communication with God, than just supplication. I have no problem with the way that we teach children and youth how to pray. We, we use the acts term and we say, ask, and, um, and, and, then, and then we say, um, I honestly, I forget the C. Um, and, and, and we've got this, oh, confess, right, of course, ask, confess, thank, and then supplications. You know, we've got this going on, and uh, it's a great idea, but it's really small to have an adult conversation about prayer on, to have a conversation that says our language is so much larger than simply talking to God. And it's not ask at the beginning, it's adoration, by the way. Anyways, um, I look at all of those things. I look at that model of prayer, and then I look at Psalms, and I say, we can enrich our connectivity to God by bringing in these larger ideas that God brings in, that that the psalmists have brought in, and they've said we need to increase our language about God and about prayer so that we're able to be more connected to him. So it's, it's a closer relationship. I'm going to pray in the end, and then we're going to read Psalm 97. God, I pray that you would expand our language in prayer. Not so that we can be impressive, not so that we can impress others, but so that we have a connectivity with you and your connectivity with creation. 
so that we have a better perspective of who you are rather than kind of the evangelical default of God as judge and God as Santa Claus. God, I pray that we would see you as a much greater vision of who you are and it would reflect in our prayers. That our prayers would become prayers not just of request, but of adoration. That they would become prayers of worship. That they would become prayers of of humility. And they would become prayers that, that see us as part of a grand story and not the center of the story. God, I pray that you would see your words lived out in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read this psalm, Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice. Because of your judgments, O Lord, for you, O Lord, are most high over the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. For you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Verses 1 to 4 start off with this beautiful reflection on the greatness of God, but it's different than the ones that we've seen in the past. See, the the greatness of God is found in the scope of God's reign, and right at the beginning, there's this poetic idea that, that God is a volcano, That God is seen in the act of a volcano. Smoke is all around this mountain. And clouds and thick darkness are there. And fire goes before him. The eruption of the lava. And it burns up his adversaries all around. Lightnings are created and light up the world. The earth sees it and it trembles. And the mountain, it melts like wax before the Lord. You get this picture of God as a volcano, a powerful volcano erupting inside of his creation, just just blowing up everything that wasn't right, just just blowing it all up. And 
you know, this is really interesting, the scope of God's reign, the perspective, this perspective that we have here. You know, um, I think sometimes we, we might just compartmentalize God a little bit too much. Sometimes our prayers make God a little bit too little. That's what I was getting to. When, when a psalm like this is like, think about this. Think about God as a volcano. Like, he just erupts and the power of the volcano to change the landscape, to move things in ways that no human could have done, but God can do it. This is imagery. It's imagery saying that if there's a situation in your life, that God has the power to shift everything and change it. And, and it's, such a, it's such a crazy thing. This psalm is a celebration of God and his faithfulness. And it's meant to be an encouraging thing. And it's so interesting that here we've just, you know, linked it with, with a volcano and with thunderstorms. And it's just, it's kind of beautiful. The imagery of nature's raw power makes us think of God's raw power ability. And in our prayers, that is a huge faith builder. Now, in our culture, where we don't like to talk about death and destruction, the idea of God as a volcano is a little bit offensive to us because we, oh, but volcanoes are bad, always bad. Well, okay, but they're powerful. And God is powerful, and so that's where that fits. His power is magnificent. The earth and the other nations, the people who aren't on God's side, they see God's power. The geographic barriers that separate people, they're brought down by God. You know, the Bible, actually, if you look throughout the Psalms, you'll notice that there's a trend in the Psalms that talk about the power, the, the powerful elements of weather, thunderstorms, volcanoes, um, tidal waves, all of these things are attributed to God. And you've got this huge piece. It's like, think of nature and all of its power. And from that basis, now you can start to think of just the beginning of God's power. That's just the little bit of God's power. His power is even greater than all of that. And, and there's something really faith-building about that because we know the character and the heart of God to recognize that along with his character and his heart, he is not meek and unable to do anything. He is powerful. And this prayer puts that, out, that reminder out there for us. Verses 6 and 7, Psalm reminds us, the psalm reminds us of God's power over all creation. That creation itself points us to God. And so whenever we see mountains in the Old Testament and even the New Testament, they're referring to strength. Um, they're referring to a place where God has come down. So we see this mountain theme inside of this passage, and we, and we see them melting like wax before the Lord. And we see that, that the strong realities that exist around us don't even hold anything to the power of God who exists in, as, inside of a volcano. So the strength of, of your situation, the, the immovable reality 
This here is saying God's power is even beyond that immovable reality. Mountains wax. Your situation melts in the power of God. We've got to remember that God is not just loving and faithful and gracious and all these nice little ideas that we have about God, and he's so nice, and we could put him in a little corner. God is ridiculously powerful. And there's something stunning about that, and the psalm really helps us bring that up to the surface, to articulate it, to strengthen our own language and our own prayer life, that God is powerful. False nature, all false gods, sorry, uh, of nature will worship God. And this is really interesting. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all people will see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Right? So we've got this, this all false gods are going to, to worship God. It continues on. It says, who, who make their boast in worthless idols, worship him, all you gods. So while the pagan world, while the secular world worships whatever we worship in our culture, and back then they worshiped trees and sun and moon and all that other stuff, all of those false gods are declaring the glory and the power of God. Like that volcano is declaring the glory and the power of God. And so when we worship a false god, the psalm reminds us that those false gods turn and worship the true God. So we waste all of our energies when we worship something that is subordinate to the true God. We need to direct our attention to who God truly is. The temptation is to worship that which is visible. The temptation is to, is to pretend that God is the volcano. It's to pretend that God, because he provides, is the provision. It's the temptation to say that because this is a, a, an outcome of what God has done, it is the God. When I, when I hear Christians say, I go off into nature and I feel connected to God, you know, we, we must be very clear to say, yes, it points to God and it gives us space to consider God and consider his power, but we must be very careful to say that it is not God because it too will bow in worship of God. Worship him, all you gods. You know, I mean, let's think about what worship really is today. What do we ritually put our hope in? In our world, we tend to worship intangibles. Back then, they worshiped trees and moon and, and sun and, you know, the rain. But now we worship intangibles. We think of ourselves as, as advanced, you know, because we know that God isn't a, a tree. But we worship the God of productivity. You know, we bow before, oh, well, we've got to hit that deadline, and we worship it like it's something that's more powerful than us. We worship financial success. It's one of our metrics of overall success. Oh, we are... We are truly, we're truly achieving something if we can, you know, get our net worth up over, 
X number of dollars. That's success. There it is, guys. Worship that. We worship family bonds. And, and we say that the most important thing in our universe is that family is close. We worship our purpose for life, you know. And so what I want to remind us is that all of our false gods will bow to God. Productivity bows to God who's most productive. God is way more productive than anything that we could have done. Financial success bows to God who owns all of creation. The God of family bonds bows to God whom all people are bound to. Even the God of our purpose in life submits to the God who defines purpose. And so whatever your gods are, whether they're material or immaterial, whether tangible or intangible, all of your gods will bow to this great God. And this prayer allows us to remember that God is God above all else. And this prayer allows us to put God where he belongs. So in doing that, verse 8 and 9 elevate Zion. Now, this is the point where we actually start to see a little bit of history. We know now where this is written in history. It's written as, as the people of God. It's post-David. And as the people of God start looking to, um, to the promise of God for Israel, Judah, that that. God will always be in control. And they start calling Judah and Jerusalem Zion, the holy hill. And so Zion hears and is glad. And we see this elevation of, of Zion. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of all your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over the earth, and you are exalted far above all other gods. And so we hear this. And as the church today, we hear this, the promise that God is above all other gods, and we remember it, and we are gladdened by it. It brings joy to us. Why does it bring joy to us? Well, it brings joy because it's vindicating. It's reminding us that, yeah, you, you did choose the, the right cart to hitch your hope onto. It's a good thing. And so we're glad we're glad. And, and, we, and then we move to the end of the psalm, Psalm 10 through to 12. And, and we see this, you know, you who love the Lord. The psalmist now turns his prayer attention to a potential listener or a reader. And now as I read this, I am now caused to think internally. You who love the Lord hate evil. Last week we spent time on confession. Guys, it is not inappropriate to hate evil. The Bible commands it in numerous locations that we need to recognize that there's something wrong in the world. We don't berate, we don't judge, we don't hold people up to these standards, but by all means, we have to recognize that evil as a presence, it exists. We can no longer afford to deny it and think positive thoughts in the face of it. Be clear, we hate evil, we have to. 
We have to hate those things that destroy and bring death. I can't celebrate things that destroy humanity, that destroy the world, that destroy God's creation. I can't celebrate that, and neither can God. So we hate evil. God is just, and he is making everything right. He preserves the life of the saints, and he delivers them from the hand of the wicked. God is active against evil and will, in due course, remove it. God delivers us from those who do evil, the wicked ones, and we're protected by God, and God will finalize his kingdom. We have great joy in this. So one of the things that's happened in this psalm, as, as we've gone through it, we've recognized the scope. The thing in our prayers that is so often missing is, is the connection of God with creation. Not that creation is God, but that it shows God's power. The next time you get a chance to look at a great body of water, consider the power of that water if it was unleashed from a dam over any landmass. Consider the power of Niagara Falls and the eroding nature that's been taking on the um, escarpment for year after year after year, as long as we can track, track back. Think of God's power the next time you see a storm rushing in and the clouds are billowing and the lightning is bolting. Think about God's power when we consider these acts of nature and reflect on them in your prayer. Because not only do we serve a faithful, loving God, we also serve the most powerful being in existence. We serve and love and give our devotion to this God. So while we are afraid of power because absolute power corrupts absolutely, while we fear power among humanity, we have learned that we can trust God's power because his purposes are truly good. God didn't have to be good. He chose to be good. God chose to be good. He chose to work in us to act according to his good, his good pleasure. And we see that God is good. And so now we do not need to fear the power and the corruption of power that we've seen all throughout, you know, um, all throughout history. We see that God is good. And so now we can trust God in that power, we can see the thunderstorm and say, oh, but that's just a small fraction of God's genuine power. His genuine ability to change the circumstance. His genuine ability to set us free. We see it in the tangibility of nature and it applies to the intangibility of our lives. And so allow that nature piece to be part of your prayers because it reflects God's power. Verse 11 says, light is sown for the righteous. And, and light is a universal symbol of hope. This whole series is called the hope in Psalms. And, and it says, light is sown for the righteous. There is hope. A joy comes when you're vindicated in your righteousness. A joy comes when, when, that, 
when that truth has been revealed to you. 1 John 1 talks a lot about light and darkness, and, and you start to see this, this dichotomy existing in 1 John. And 1 John 1, 5-7 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin. If you have light in you, you live in the light, and that's integrity. If you have the light of God in you, when we think about this light piece that comes and says light is sown for the righteous, when you live in the revelation of God's truth, of God's power, of God's love, of God's grace, we've talked about all of these things in this sermon series. When you live in the light of all of the truth that comes out of the hope in Psalms, We no longer participate in acts of the darkness that bring about death. We hate what is evil. We reject that. We ask God to cleanse us and to teach us and to change us. That's why Psalm 119 would have been really nice and important but didn't fit. So so that teach me your way, O Lord, lead me not in a in a or lead me in a clear path because of my enemies. We've got this, this prayer out to God. Teach me, O God, teach me, O God. He is changing us. And we no longer participate in the darkness, but we live in the light. And so it's integrity that we say, we give our allegiance to God, we trust him, we recognize his power, and we live in the truth of that with integrity. You know, we do, we give thanks that God will overcome all forms of evil. I say it again and again and again, but this is the core hope of the Christian. God overcomes evil and will live with us. He does it through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. This is the truth for which we hold on to, which gives us the confidence. The hope that Psalms brings us is it consistently brings us back to the nature of God and says, this God is competent, capable, and willing to bring about that which you hoped for. And not some trite, easy hope, big hopes. God living with us and making all things right. This sermon series has been wonderful, and there's tons and tons of psalms, but what I wanted to do with it was I wanted to give us the permission to start to read the Psalms as our prayer, to recognize that some of the imagery is there, but to recognize that they're expanding our vocabulary from the very reduced idea of prayer that we have now, where God is kind of Santa Claus, or God is, you know, the the judge that we have to somehow come and grovel and then assume his forgiveness. Psalms gives us a perspective that says, okay, there's something much larger going on. There's a consideration of the universe, a consideration of eternity, a consideration of the implications of my actions, a consideration of God's grand superiority and majesty. And we see all of these things coming out of the Psalms, and it gives us much more content for our prayer lives. It gives us much more to meditate on day and night, to think about the greatness of God. My hope for us is that we become stronger spiritually. 
that our spiritual message is not one of weakness and, and, and inconsequentiality, but that our spiritual strength becomes grounded in a deep trust of a great, powerful God, and it's never taken flippantly.